Um, I was saying to Amy, coming here, it, it's, it's strange. It's almost like uh, visiting my sister's baby like for the first time. Like, I, I, this love that I have for this little person that I don't even know. And coming here, it's like the love and affection that I have for you guys. Uh, it doesn't make any logical sense, given that I don't really know many of you, but there's just a connection and a, and a love and affection that we have for you. Uh, and you guys are in... Um, You've got it really good, let me just tell you. I know we are biased, but Johnny and Amy are awesome. I know, you know, we're supposed to love them and all of that, but they really are very, very special people. And so would you just love them to bits? I'm sure you do anyway, but just encourage them whenever you get the chance. Just encourage them. Because, um, you know, it's, a, it's an amazing privilege to lead a church, as Tim and I have discovered over the last couple of years. But there are challenges. There are moments where it's not so easy. And so I know that your encouragement will mean such a, a huge amount to them. Uh, and yeah, it's just great that you're here. Okay, so we are going to be looking at the story of Esther in just a moment. Um, Tim and I are freshly back from America. We just landed back last night with our family. We, we had a week there. And uh, my eldest daughter, Phoebe, uh, she was talking to me about America just a few weeks before we went, and I was asking her about places in the world that she would love to go. Uh, and she said to me, I would love to go to New York. I'm like, great choice. Why is it that you would love to go to New York? And she said, you know what, Mom? I would just love to see the Statue of Puberty. Like, oh, great, good. Um, I, yeah, I've never been myself. I have been through puberty, though, and I'm so glad that I don't have to do that again. I'm just going to move this forward. My mum and dad are, there, are here. They're like, yeah, I'm so glad you don't have to go through puberty again either. Anyway, let's stop talking about puberty. So we're talking about Esther, and I love the book of Esther. Some of you here will know it really well. Others may not be very familiar with it. Uh, I'm just going to whiz through the story because there are quite a lot of twists and turns in this story just to get to the bit of the story that I want us to look at specifically. So we're going to whistle through it. Um, the book of Esther is set in a place called Persia. It's about 500 years before Christ uh, arrives on earth and Persia is the biggest empire at that time. It's like a powerhouse, this big empire. And the guy in charge is a guy called King Xerxes and uh, he is quite a vain and arrogant leader and, and he's just at the, the, the point at which that we begin the story of Esther. He has been throwing this kind of big open house, showing off all his wealth and power and splendor and all of that. Uh, and he has a, a queen, Queen Vashti at the time. Uh, and at the end of this sort of period of showing off, essentially, he's thrown this seven-day binge drinking party and right at the end of this party he calls for his wife Vashti because Vashti is quite hot apparently the Bible tells us not in those words exactly and so he he gets his attendant to go and get Vashti so that he can show her off in front of his drunk friends and Vashti says no no thank you I don't really want to do that and the king is 
not that pleased about being humiliated like that in front of his friends. And so he chats to his advisors and him and his advisors agree that the best thing that they could do is get rid of the queen, Queen Vashti. She's been so rude, so disrespectful that she's out. And so there's a job vacancy in the land of Persia at that time. They need a new queen. And so the king and his advisors, they sit round together and they, they work out what they're going to do um, to find a new queen rather than just looking around amongst the, the small pool of other royalty, which they would normally do. Uh, some bright spark, and I can imagine the, the king and his male advisors all sitting around the boardroom table, and some bright spark says, I know, let's invite the most beautiful women in all the land to spend a year at the palace. And all the guys are like, yes, great idea, let's do that. And so they plan this kind of year-long beauty contest to find a new queen. Meanwhile, there is this young, orphaned refugee called Esther, who happens to be breathtakingly beautiful. She's being raised by her older cousin, Mordecai, and she gets swept up in this beauty contest. She gets picked out for this uh, beautiful appearance, appearance that she has, and so she's plucked really from obscurity and is taken to the palace. And she, as I said, is, uh, is kind of uh, caught up in this, uh, this year-long beauty contest that's, that's taking place. Meanwhile, Mordecai, her older cousin, a Jew like Esther, hears about this assassination plot against the king. And he reports it and it gets recorded in the kind of the royal documents. It's important that we know that that happens. There is also a villain, an enemy in this story, a guy called Haman. And Haman, again, is very vain, very arrogant. He's kind of second to the king. He's well in there with King Xerxes. But Mordecai does not like Haman, and Haman has a problem with Mordecai because Mordecai refuses to bow down before Haman whenever he walks past. And so Haman, in his anger with Mordecai, decides to not just get rid of Mordecai, he wants to annihilate the whole of the Jewish people. And so somehow, it's quite long and convoluted, you can read about it in the book, Haman manages to convince the king to set a date in the future where the whole of the Jewish people will be wiped out, just assassinated, wiped out. Mordecai hears about this plot and, of course, is heartbroken, absolutely devastated, not just for himself, but for his whole people. And, of course, Esther is living in the palace and unbeknownst to the king is a Jew herself and so would not be exempt from this dangerous plot. And so the point that I want us to look at uh, is in chapter 4 in Esther and it's this conversation that takes place between Mordecai and Esther in this exchange of messages that is brought to them through this, um, this guy called Hathak. And so we're going to read from chapter 4, verse 6. Okay, here we go. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict, for their annihilation. 
which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy, and to plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned um, by the king has, there is but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the royal scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews would escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. I forgot to point out that Esther is made queen. I realize that's quite a key part of the story. She is made queen. And the sense that I have of what God wants to say to us, to you guys as a church, is that you are here for such a time as this. More specifically, I believe that God has positioned you and commissioned you for such a time as this. Now, we're like an army. We are, we're an army in God's kingdom. And with any army in a battle, there is a deliberate placing. We have been deliberately placed. We have also been given authority. We're also fighting for a greater cause. It's not just for ourselves. There is a, a bigger picture here. But what's interesting is that if we are only positioned without commissioning, we have the strategy, but we don't have the authority. If we're only commissioned without the positioning, we have the authority, but there's no strategy. You see, we are, we are children of God. We are inheritors together of the kingdom of God. We have been positioned and commissioned. God has deliberately placed us, strategically placed each one of us and this church, but he's also given us authority. He's given us a commission. We have both. Because we're here for such a time as this. As Tim said, um, we moved to Birmingham two, nearly three years ago now, actually. And at the time, it was like a repositioning for us as a family. We were very much at home in London. We were part of a great church there. Our lives were rooted in that place. And to be honest, we felt like we would be in London for quite a long time. And then God spoke and lots of things happened and conversations took place. And it became very clear that God was calling us, repositioning us out of London and into Birmingham. And as Tim alluded, it's been the most amazing adventure it's been challenging. There have been sacrifices, but we, we have no doubt that God's hand was on us in repositioning us geographically to this new place. 
And I want to encourage each one of you that wherever you are positioned, it is not coincidental. It is not incidental. It is not inconsequential. It's not insignificant. It is not unimportant. You have been positioned. And if we look at the book of Esther, what's interesting is it's one of only two books where God isn't mentioned at all by name. I don't know whether you're aware of that, but we don't read God's name in any of the verses. And yet, we can see God's fingerprints all over the story, like this divine thread that runs all the way through it. It's a story of God's sovereignty, God's um, providence, every detail, every twist and turn. And what we see taking place in the book of Esther are two narratives. You've got the micro story, the micro narrative, which are all the the details of the story that we've just read. But there is also this macro narrative, this macro story. And what's at stake in that macro story is actually the ancestral line of Jesus, the Messiah. And we know that the Messiah, Jesus, are being born on it's like the punchline you know it's the it's the coming together of this cosmic narrative Jesus the savior coming to earth and so when we read queen uh, the, the story of esther in the book of the in this this book this is actually not about the genocide of a particular people group as horrific as that is This is really about God's overarching plan to save his people, to be reconciled with his sons and his daughters. And it's a story that we know ends in ultimate victory, that macro story, that big picture of God rescuing his people. We know, we know who wins. There is a victorious end and we know it already. And so Esther is positioned, in fact, in both those stories. She's positioned in this micro story that we read, but she's also part of that big macro story. And I love that line, that famous line that we read from Mordecai, where we see these two stories coming crashing together, the micro and the macro. And who knows, Esther, but you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And each of us, this church, this church has been positioned, not just in a micro story, but the macro story for such a time as this. Individually, at times when we look at our own micro story, it can be hard. Everyday life can be challenging at times. It's easy to forget about that macro story that we also get to be a part of. The story of God building and establishing his kingdom here on earth. The story that ends in victory. And there are moments certainly in Esther's micro story where it looks hopeless at times. It looks challenging at times. And the the perspective that Esther have, that Mordecai has, is limited. And for us too, at times, our perspective is so limited. I heard about this um, 
this place in Asia that is well known for making some of the most beautiful fabrics uh, in that part of the world. Amazing detail and color, these are just stunning fabrics. And the secret behind uh, these beautiful fabrics is this father and son team. Uh, and they hand weave these fabrics together. And the way that they work as a team is they sit in this room and inside the room, there's this platform. And the father sits on the platform, raised up a good you know, couple of feet off the ground. And the son sits on the floor, surrounded by all the colored spools and threads. And the way it works is the son sits there and he has this, this shuttle on the machinery and he looks up. And he waits for the nod of instruction from his father. And when the father nods, he runs the shuttle just simply from one side to the other. And then he looks and he waits in obedience for the next nod of instruction from his father. And of course, where the sun's sitting, it's just a mess. It's a mess of thread and knots and it's a tangle. And he can't see, but where the father sits... He has a completely different perspective. He can see the whole thing mapped out. And for us in our own lives, it can feel like we're just sitting in the mess. We can't see the big picture. We don't have the perspective that our father sees. And we can get caught up in the challenges of that micro story that each one of us are journeying through. We can be distracted by the detail, the weighed down even weighed down by the details, the, the distraction, weighed down by the disappointment. That's the sense that I have that for some of us, what distracts us is, is the disappointment that we're carrying. I heard once somebody say, and this resonated with me so much, uh, that church ministry is simultaneously the most exciting and the most disappointing work that you can be in. And for anyone here, church ministry or um, ministry out in the work, you know, in the workforce, there are times when it can be simultaneously incredibly exciting and bitterly disappointing all at the same time. We've experienced incredible encouragements at Gas Street. We've also journeyed through real disappointments. There are people in our church, like there will be here, who are journeying through incredibly challenging times. Illness, unemployment, death, depression, mental health issues, really difficult realities that people are facing. Some of the most disappointment that I experience actually is, is, is within myself. Again, it might be others that resonate with that. Times I feel disappointed by my lack of faith. I was speaking about that earlier. I, I, I'm disappointed at times with my lack of courage, my lack of conviction, you know, my lack of ability, my lack of wisdom and discernment, my lack of a prayer life sometimes, my lack in some of the relationships that I'm in. Times I feel disappointed with God, really disappointed with God. People that we're praying for, where there doesn't seem to be the breakthrough that we're longing to see. Prayers that we pray in you know, a good, 
godly, earnest prayers that don't feel like they get answered. It causes disappointment. There are battles. And in the micro story of our lives, some of those battles at times feel lost. Some of them feel lost. We have this limited perspective. But it's not over. It's not over. We know that the war is won. Ultimately, the war is won. It's not over. It's interesting, um, as I was looking through the book of Esther and reading various commentaries, a couple of different theologians have compared the book of Esther to a chess game. You know that the different... um, players, uh, people in the story, uh, you know, pieces on a chessboard and it's like God makes one move and then Satan makes another and then God makes another one and Satan moves and it's, it's like this chess game being worked out and of course we know who wins. And I heard about this, this painting that was painted in the 19th century by a guy called uh, Retz, his name, I'm probably not pronouncing that well. And this guy called Paul Murphy was a chess pro, absolute chess pro. And he was visiting some friends. And these friends had this painting hanging up in their dining room. And Paul Murphy was there having dinner at these friends' house. And as the guests were eating together, they all became aware that Paul was just sat there staring at this painting. And the painting is called Checkmate. The painting's called Checkmate. And as this chess pro sat there staring at the painting, the rest of the dinner guests all began to hush. And as they waited, Paul looked up and just said in this quiet voice, the game isn't over. The king has one more move. And they all began to get excited and they all studied the painting and the story goes that they immediately set up a chessboard and placed all the pieces on the board. And sure enough, the king has one more move. And what's interesting in the picture, we see the guy in green being depicted as the enemy, as Satan, and this young man playing against Satan. And in the picture, Satan looks so smug. He's kind of leaning back like he's got it. He's got it nailed. And of course, this is a depiction of the man's soul, this game for the soul of this young man. And Satan thinks he's got it. And what I love about this story about the chess pro is even when it looks like Satan has the victory, the king has one more move. And for some of us here, We might be journeying through life and it feels like we have lost. It feels like we've lost hope. We've we've lost the victory. It feels like the battle has been lost. And I think what God wants to say to you is, no, the king has one more move. The king has one more move. The enemy does not get the final victory. The enemy does not get the final victory. The king has one more move. We've been positioned, each one of us, this church has been positioned for such a time as this, but we've also been commissioned. 
And the commission will be unique for each and every one of us. God has a plan and a purpose for your life and it will be unique to you. And one of the things that undermines our commission the most, I believe, is comparison. We are so caught up these days in comparing ourselves to other people. You know, I have this love-hate relationship with social media. I've kind of ditched it for Lent because what I realize is that it, it breeds comparison in me. And that's not to say that we kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater, but it's just something that I'm really mindful of within myself. And what happens is, is as I compare myself to other people, I question, I call into question the commission that God has laid on my life because it doesn't look like anybody else's. And that's okay. That's okay. Don't let comparison undermine the commission that God has placed on your life. But what's interesting is that there is a distinction between positioning and commissioning. We have all been positioned geographically. We are all positioned somewhere. But commissioning is a choice. Commissioning is a choice that each one of us makes. You think about the disciples. They were all positioned geographically uh, in, in, in that particular period in time. They were all positioned. But Jesus offers them the commission. They didn't have to go. When Jesus calls them, they didn't have to go. Jesus was inviting them in to this plan, this purpose, this commission. And they said yes to him. And like Esther, the commission is a choice. The commission is a choice. Esther is placed, again, geographically. She's placed in the palace. She's placed at that point in history. But the commissioning is the choice that she makes. It's hers to accept or not. We know that Esther's life is marked out. She has been placed there deliberately but she could have stayed safe. She could have stayed quiet and saved herself. Embracing the commission that God has laid on our lives is not always the safe option. In fact, when we embrace that commission, it often involves sacrifice. It often involves challenge. There is no commission without sacrifice. It's gonna take courage. Esther says, if I perish, I perish. I'll do it. It takes courage, it takes guts, it takes boldness and bravery. But, and here's really what I want to say, I'm going to land with. Let's not miss out. Let's not miss it. Mordecai says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance from the Jews will arise from another place. Who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther has a choice. She has a decision. God's gonna do it anyway. He's gonna do it anyway. God's kingdom is gonna come in Nottingham anyway. He's on it. He's at work here. In our story, God will save his people. That's the promise. The Messiah will come. Deliverance will come from someone else. God is not 
intimidated. He's not concerned. God will save his people. But Mordecai says to Esther, but Esther, do you want to be a part of it? Do you want to be a part of what God is already going to do? Do you want to be in on the plan? And I think God's saying to you as a church, you've got an opportunity to be part of what God is already doing here. Do you want to be in? Do you want to be a part of it? He's going to do it anyway. Could it be, could it be Trinity Nottingham that you have been positioned and commissioned for such a time as this? You have an opportunity to be part of what God is doing here in this city. Seeing God's kingdom advancing, seeing the lost saved, seeing the spirit of God move in power. God is going to do it. God is on the move. God is at work. And you have an opportunity. You have a choice. Are you in? Are you going to receive that commission? Are you going to be part of what God is doing here? Are you in? Shall we pray? Why don't we stand together?